PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. We don't know what's happening with our patients when they're not with us. And I think it's quite surprising sometimes the difference between what we see in the clinic and what's happening in the real world. I think pedometers and step counters are just too limited because we just can't tell all the kinds of exercise that our patients are doing. Welcome to this PTJ Discussion Podcast, Beyond the Step Count, real-world walking activity in people after stroke. Recent advances in activity monitors and portable accelerometers have made it possible to measure daily details of walking activity. In this discussion, Dr. Darcy Reisman, an author from a September 2012 article on this topic, and Dr. Bruce Dopkin from the LEAPS trial examine some of the surprising patterns of walking activity in individuals post-stroke. The moderator is PTJ editorial board member, Dr. Janice Eng. Hi, I'm Janice Ng, professor of physical therapy at the University of British Columbia in Canada. We'll be discussing a paper titled Structure of Walking Activity in People After Stroke, Compared with Older Adults Without Disability, a cross-sectional study by Margaret Roos, Catherine Rudolph, and Darcy Reisman. And with me today is Dr. Darcy Reisman, Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy, University of Delaware. Welcome, Darcy, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about this. We also have our guest expert, Dr. Bruce Dopkin, neurologist with the UCLA Medical Center and also editor of the Neurorehabilitation and Neuro-Repair Journal. Glad you can join us, Bruce. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'd like to introduce you first to the topic of looking at structure of walking activity after stroke. This paper examines three days of walking activity using a step monitor in a community with people with stroke, as well as similarly aged adults without any disability. And what is particularly unique was that previous studies have quantified the number of steps over a day or several days that people walked, but this paper analyzed this data even further. They looked at the length of each of these walking bouts and the frequency of these bouts. So that's what we'll be discussing today. So I wonder, Darcy, if you could start off and tell me the findings that were novel about this particular study. Yeah, so we knew from the literature that people who are living with chronic stroke are much less active in terms of their walking activity. But we were very interested in trying to understand more of how that walking activity differed. And so that's why we took a more detailed look at the data. And one of the things that we found that I found particularly interesting was that when you look at the number of steps that participants took in each bout of walking, that did not differ between the people living with stroke and the non-disabled older adults. Most of the walking bouts that were done contained very few steps, 20 to 25 steps, and that was true across the board, and that's consistent with the literature in a younger working population, that a lot of our walking really is in these short bouts. So that really led us to conclude that this reduction in amount of walking activity per day really isn't about the number of steps in the bout. It's really more about the number of bouts of walking. Theoretically, most of these patients living in the community have the capacity to walk 20 steps in a row. So the fact that the number of these bouts differed 
probably is less related to their capacity to walk 20 steps and more to other factors. And then finally, we were really interested in the finding that when you look at the percentage of day spent in short, medium, and long walking bouts, that percentage didn't really differ very much, with the exception of the percentage of time spent in the very long walking bouts by the most limited of the participants with stroke. So those are the main points that we found really interesting and helped us get some more insight into the walking behavior in this population. Thanks, Darcy, for those insights. Bruce, do you want to comment about your initial thoughts about the study and some of the things that Darcy has commented on? Yeah, we have some parallel data to what Darcy found, both in a paper published about using bilateral ankle accelerometer algorithms in the journal Stroke in August last year, and we also have some parallel data from our LEAPS trial, the Locomotor Experience Applied Post-Stroke Trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May 2011. It was lit by Pam Duncan, and so it'll be interesting to add a little more about that. The thing that interests me, Darcy, was that you started out with the notion that the classification of walking handicap that was made so well-known by Jacqueline Perry and Mulroy and all back in 1995, you had initially expected a difference between people who were considered to be household ambulators versus those that had limited community mobility based on walking speed versus those who had unlimited mobility capacity, again, based on walking speed. And those groups are defined as less than 0.4 meters per second walking, 0.4 to less than 0.8 and greater than 0.8. It turned out that it didn't matter. Number of steps wasn't really reflected by that kind of categorization. It turned out in that LEAPS trial, that the number of steps taken per day was reflected in walking speed, but primarily at the highest walking speeds, much as you found in your much smaller group. There were over 400 people in the LEAPS trial. And it turned out that overall in the LEAPS trial, baseline people took approximately 2,500 steps. And at 12 months after all the different interventions, one of which was body weight supported treadmill training with overground training, and the other was a home progressive exercise program, it turned out that the number of steps increased to about 4,300 overall. And it didn't really matter whether you started out walking at less than 0.4 meters per second or less than 0.8 meters per second. It did turn out that people who jumped to the next higher category, so went from household walkers to limited or unlimited community ambulators or started out as limited community ambulators and got above that, they did tend to take more steps So, in a sense, the leapers who cross that boundary, arbitrarily defined by Jacqueline Perry and all, did do a little better than the non-leapers in terms of total steps. The total number of steps was still remarkably low. Mm -hmm. Darcy, that brings up a really interesting point, whether a particular measurement of walking, whether it be frequency, number of steps, or bouts, or the particular length chosen for the bout, become differentially important depending on the level severity of that individual. And it's interesting as a clinician to think of which are the possible measurements of walking that are most meaningful for my patient. I wonder if you can comment on that. Yeah. Part of the reason that we really started looking at activity was that we found in our studies that patients were coming in and doing quite intensive activities with us. And when we started putting step monitors on them, 
we saw that, in fact, they were doing more with us than they were doing the whole rest of the day in terms of the number of steps that they were taking. And so we really started talking to our patients and trying to understand what some of the barriers were to them doing the level of activity that it seemed that they were capable of because they were producing it when they were in the lab with us. And there's a lot of different factors that enter into what motivates a person to increase walking activity. And so in my estimation, we need to spend some time speaking with our patients about the things that motivate them as well as the things that are barriers for them and pay more attention to the amount of activity that our patients are doing. I think one of the concerns I do have is that there has been a very simple message in the past where we've said originally, oh, 10,000 steps per day, and that's been kind of tempered now back to about 5,000 steps per day is good for your health. And I wonder if we start to feed back more information, frequency, time, and we're trying to encourage steps, would that potentially be confusing or difficult to translate to people living with stroke in terms of strategies to get them walking more? It seems to me that the total number of steps is nice for normal, healthy people to try to aim for because that means you're walking probably about three miles a day. And so that at least may relate to some level of cardiovascular fitness. But it's only meaningful if you walk at a speed that gives you a little bit of an increase in your heart rate or a little bit of shortness of breath in terms of leading to fitness. I'm guessing from our studies where we have walking speeds as well as step counts that most of the people who are taking 5,000 steps a day who have a hemiparesis are walking rather slowly, not getting the kind of fitness effect that you'd like to see. And they tend to, of course, walk at the speed that actually keeps them from getting short of breath allows them to feel comfortable if they're outside the home with people walking towards them or around them. And so step numbers aren't as critical for progressing our patients as I think some combination of capturing real-world walking speeds, real-world distances, and perhaps monitoring that also with looking at their heart rates. Yeah, I think this is a really important point. So there's been some discussion in the literature about when people are extremely sedentary, do we focus on just getting them less sedentary as a first step and then work on things like improving intensity, which is really what provides the cardiovascular benefits. And so I think that's a really interesting topic that seems to be unresolved in the world that deals with lack of physical activity in non-disabled people. So it'll be interesting to see how that discussion progresses, but I think we are certainly now going back and looking at some of this data and trying to calculate intensity by the number of steps that are taken in the bout and taking into consideration the length of the bout, you can get some idea of intensity. And we're going to be taking a look at that because our hunch is that these intensities are quite low. And then the question is, even if people are increasing the number of steps per day, if the intensity is really not changing, how much of a health benefit does the increased activity have? Which I think, again, goes back to the debate about whether we just need to start by getting people less sedentary and then progress from there. Yeah, by choosing that number of 20 steps, which was wasn't that what something like 70% of walking bouts were for 20 steps or less? Right. So our, our median number of steps per bout was 20. 
Right. So that means that if you're doing more baths, then chances are you're doing something more functionally at home. Mm -hmm. You're moving about your own environment, but it doesn't tell us anything about how you might do out in the community and doesn't tell us much about fitness or safety necessarily. And that's really one of the most interesting things about your study, that the bouts were so low. The mean number of steps taken per bout in the LEAPS trial, I think, was about 60. It was a little more for people who walk more than 0.4 meters per second and somewhat less for those that walk less than 0.4 meters per second. And that was at the baseline. Then it kind of doubled at 12 months. So it was a little higher, interestingly, even though the range of number of steps was quite large. I'm guessing that some of this is, you know, that every population is going to be a little bit different. I agree. And I also think this gets to a little technical issue, which, you know, may or may not be interesting to anybody beyond those of us who study this in detail. But that's actually why we chose to look at the median rather than the mean. So if we look at the mean, our numbers are higher. And that's because the longer walking bouts, of course, then slide the number higher. Even if you had only a couple bouts, for example, of three or 400 steps, and most of your bouts were down in the 20 to 25 range, of course, the mean is going to be driven up a little bit by those longer bouts. So that's why we chose to look at median. We didn't come up with that idea. That's from a paper by Michael Orndorff's group that indicated that maybe looking at the median was the way to go. So I think the differences may be in part due to the population. So the LEAPS trial, initially when they started, they were more subacute, I guess, and our population was chronic. But I also think it may have to do with that little technicality. Yeah, the median number of steps in weeks, I was just looking, was half of the mean. Yep. So more around 30, more like ours. Yeah. It was closer to 30. Interesting. So talking about technical issues, we all do the six-minute walk test. We all do gate speed, but you use the stack activity monitor, which is called the SAM, in your trial. We don't usually give an instrument to somebody for a week and say, here, take this, come back in three days or seven days, and we'll look at how much walking and the types of walking you've done. Do you think these type of measures should be standard outcome measures for rehabilitation outcomes? I really think that it can provide some very useful information. The problem, as I see it right now, is having a device that is both reliable and accurate for people who walk at quite slow speeds and also is cost-effective. So many of these devices are quite expensive, and giving them out in your clinic may be not so realistic. I think there's a lot of technology on the horizon. I know Dr. Dobkin's group is working on this to get devices that are reliable and accurate and also provide a bit of information beyond steps. And I think this is just the way we need to go. As therapists, we don't know what's happening with our patients when they're not with us. And I think it's quite surprising sometimes the difference between what we see in the clinic and what's happening in the real world. So hopefully we'll have technology that can be affordable and even provide more information beyond just the steps so we can understand a little bit better what's happening in the real world. You've hit on one of my pet peeves with my own trials that I've been involved in, in clinical trials where walking outcomes were primary outcomes in stroke, spinal cord injury, and multiple sclerosis. We spent about $30 million in IH funding doing interventions in folks, showing improvements, but our primary outcome measure was how fast you could walk 10 meters on a flat, tiled surface in a laboratory setting. 
and secondary measures were how far you walked in six minutes. And I have no idea what any of those participants in these trials are doing when they're out there at home or in the community. And so the STEP monitor gives a little bit of information. It's probably about 80% accurate in terms of actually giving you the number of steps. What we really need, though, are tools that give us much more information in the real world to understand whether our patients change the way they walk, the character of their walking, the character of their gait cycle, the distances they walk, the speeds that they use. And so what we're going to see on the market very soon are devices like ones we've been working with with our Wireless Health Institute at UCLA. These are accelerometers, triaxial accelerometers that you can wear anywhere. And we get a signature from each subject about their walking features using these inertial measures. And then using machine learning algorithms, we can have patients wear these devices anywhere for as long as they want and be able to report walking speed for each bout of walking, distance walked, changes in symmetry and swing or stance between the legs, get information about energy use, and overall be able to be a fly on the wall and be able to look at both the quantity of activity and even the type of activity. Is it walking? Is it running? Is it cycling? Is it legless? That kind of information will give us much better insight as to real-world outcomes for our interventions. It also may give us the ability to give people feedback. We're running a trial now in 12 countries where patients wear these devices during their inpatient rehab, and we each day give feedback to the subjects as to their walking speed and how far they walk in each bout of walking distances, that sort of thing. And we've been able to do this just over the internet with very little training, and that's been pretty successful. So we figure if we can do that at sites that are in India and Egypt and Taiwan and even, uh, what's that place called, the Mayo Clinic, <laughs> the chances are this sort of thing will be usable anywhere. And it'll be really inexpensive because accelerometers like that, you'll be able to buy probably for $75. And if enough of them get sold by different companies, maybe it'll drop down to $20. Right. And I think the critical piece is getting this real-world information. I think as devices provide more information, the data set will become very rich and we'll really be able to get a much better picture of what our interventions are and are not doing with regard to our patients. So with that, I'd like to get some closing thoughts from you of how we could incorporate this information from this paper into today's clinical practice. Yeah, so I think the main piece of information that I hope people take away from this is that probably our focus should not just be on steps per day, but also on the type of walking and the frequency of walking. As I mentioned, across the board, the participants with stroke had fewer bouts of walking, even when those bouts were very, very short and probably within their capacity. So one way that people with stroke can begin to increase their activity is simply by getting out of the chair more at home and moving around and spending less time in sedentary positions. They don't need to be able to get out and walk in the community necessarily. They can make some small gains just by increasing the number of times they're moving around in their house. Thanks. And uh, Bruce, any closing comments? You know, a really powerful goal might be to begin to start pushing patients 
to walk longer durations of stepping. And so maybe look at studies like Darcy's studies, maybe from leaps and others, and try to figure out you know, how many bouts of walking greater than, say, I'll make it up, 250 steps a day is likely to suggest that you really are increasingly independent in the community. And so we would try to progressively increase the number of steps people take. I think pedometers and step counters are just too limited because we just can't tell all the kinds of exercise that our patients are doing in addition to walking. And we can't tell much about energy use and levels of fitness and levels of fatigability, that sort of thing, which are very important for these patients. And so that's where bilateral ankle accelerometers and machine learning algorithms that give you the therapist and the patient feedback about exactly what someone's doing will produce feedback that is important to what the therapist would like the patient to participate in doing and what patients feel they need to be able to do. And most important, it'll give us a much better outcome measure for our randomized clinical trials so we can get beyond just step counts or just a 10-meter walking speed. We'll get some real-world information that hopefully then will increase the likelihood that interventions that are working will be adapted by the community. Okay, and with that, I'd like to thank Darcy and Bruce for participating in this PTJ podcast. Thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening. Thank you.